Welcome to SL Advisors Talks Markets. I'm Simon Lack. At SL Advisors, we know it's important to stay ahead of inflation. We think about where interest rates are going and what this means for markets. Pipeline companies may offer inflation protection through the energy transition. We identify other sectors with the ability to maintain their margins when prices are rising. Nothing we say should be construed as a sale of securities, which can only be made through the relevant prospectus. In this week's podcast, I interview Jeff Waters of OFC Wealth Management. So today I'm excited to have Jeff Waters on our podcast. Jeff is president and CEO of OFC Wealth Management in Short Hills, New Jersey. Jeff spent 17 years on Wall Street where he worked at Solomon Brothers covering top institutional investors as a research salesman and was later associate director of US equity research at what then became Solomon Smith Barney. And Jeff founded OFC Wealth Management in 2005. I recently spent a wonderful couple of hours sitting with Jeff in his backyard on a sunny day chatting about markets. And that got us thinking that, Jeff, you'd be an interesting guest to have on our podcast. So, Jeff, thank you for coming on our podcast today. Thanks for having me here, Simon. So, Jeff, tell me, how did your background at Solomon Brothers prepare you to run your own investment firm? What did you get out of that that you bring to your clients today? So it's an interesting uh, difference in perspective. So I was basically running the day-to-day operations of a cell, large sell-side research department. So we had analysts covering stocks and publishing investment ratings and models, et cetera. And my job was to work with them to try to produce the best product and to also get our opinions on the stocks right. So we were basically trying to help large institutional investors you know, make the most money that they could, pick the very best stocks. And so I very much bring this bottom-up perspective on how stocks should be valued and therefore, you know, how the market should be valued because the market is nothing more than, you know, the sum of all the stocks within it. Sure. So so how do you assess the market today? Well, you know, uh, that period where I was running the research department was 1997 to 2003. So I basically presided over the buildup to the tech bubble the bursting of it and the unraveling of it. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's an environment that sticks with you once you live through it sure. and, uh, and bear a little bit of the scars of it. And so here we are in what seems to be, again, some version of that. So you feel like, well, I've seen this movie before and, and hopefully I won't make the same mistakes twice. Yeah, I mean, I remember in the late 90s, yes, it felt like a bubble. But it felt like a bubble for a long time. I mean, it probably was a year or two from when I started feeling that way to when things actually broke. And that's a long time if you're actually sort of positioning for things to break. What's, what are the parallels, you think, between you know, the late 90s and, and today? Well, well, first of all, it's a great point you make. And in fact, one of my favorite trivia questions is to ask what the date was that Alan Greenspan uttered the immortal words, irrational exuberance. Right, right. Do you remember when it was? I think it was 97, wasn't it? Was, it was December 96. Yeah, so wow, wow. So yeah. there you had the head of the Federal Reserve, who presumably has at least as good information as anybody else 
does. Yeah, and it didn't signaling. sound that wrong. It didn't sound like a dumb thing to say at the time even then, did it, as I remember? It, it didn't. You know, it was presumably being rational. And yet it was nearly three and a half more years of, you know, ever escalating prices really in one portion of the market only. And so, you know, you're living through that. And there I was vetting investment ratings, vetting price targets with people. Meanwhile, I had institutional salesmen telling me my clients are saying they don't want to hear about price anymore. You know, they just want to know the fundamentals are intact of the story. But don't tell us what price to buy and sell the stocks. In other words, don't you go downgrading any stocks because the price is at, you know, what you consider to be your price target. Right. For me, deep down, I, I always thought, well, that's wrong. But the problem with that is your clients are your clients. And if you don't do what they want, they tend to fire you and find someone who will. Yeah. I mean, isn't that absolutely right? Because stocks are sold, not bought. So, I mean, where do you think we are relative to that? Like if Greens would Greenspan have made that same speech a year ago? Would he have done it today? You know, where do you think we are in terms of when well, things Well, yeah, I think, and actually it's been a little insidious almost, but if you look at certain indicators, uh, and, and I think Kathy Wood's, you know, f uh, fund, ticker symbol ARKK, is now almost a right. bellwether for this hypergrowth part of the market. Yeah, sure. Uh, a lot of this stuff peaked in November. You know, that fund was down the other day, 30% off peak, which I think surprises all. <laughs> right. And so that's just the first wave of the air coming out of it, you know? Nothing's actually gone wrong yet with the fundamentals. And this is what happened in 2000. First, the air came out a little bit, you know, and then Cisco and a few bellwether companies from different sectors started to miss their numbers. And that's when all heck broke loose, you know? And you ended up with with a NASDAQ that went down a full 80% from peak to trough. So I feel that Greenspan would have said that last year. The gap between large growth and small value was the largest it had ever been in November. It's when we started to do some explicit, you know, what we would call a factor tilt, and we started to uh, intentionally add some value factor funds into our investment. Into what you're doing. I mean, do you think that COVID, by having people work from home, has sort of led to all these meme stocks like GameStop and AMC? Because people are at home and it's easy for them to, to do trades compared with being at work. Do you think that's been a factor as well? I do. I, I also think that um, us being at home led to a set of companies that were very big beneficiaries of that. Let's use Zoom as a poster child for that. Right. So now, now you had a set of companies that were in hyper growth mode, and that's what you need. If you go back through stock market history, you had railroads in the 1870s, and then you had automobiles, you had radio. Every time a new technology comes, that seems like it has got vast application to the entire population. That's when you get one of these bubbles, because people can build a model stretching as far as the eye can see with growth as far as the eye can see. And, and it's hard to refute it, right? There's no really way to refute it. And so there's some people who want to believe in this and they can make the numbers justify anything, basically. Yeah. yeah, and video calls, I mean, we started using video calls more a year ago, a little more than a year ago. And no, it's not as good as being in person, but it is better than the phone. And it's, you know, it's going to become, I think, part of how people do business now, you know, less business travel. But we'll still go back to the office. We're still going to want to see people. But we've, you know, that's something that we learned, isn't it? That's a, that's a new thing. Right. Um, so, you, so you had Zoom. You had then quickly had the vaccine stocks. You know, there was this sort of portfolio of plays on the pandemic, uh, if you want to put it that way. And, you know, they they helped 
supercharge this growth bubble that, that had already been building a few years. And I think that's what led to the climax of it that we saw throughout 2020. Plus the money, as you say, people were home. If you weren't being directly affected by the pandemic, many people's businesses or their cash flow got better because their expenses were down. You and I have talked about that. Yeah, and yeah. So a lot of people had money to burn and they saw this set of companies to invest in. Plus the whole rest of the market, you know, traditional companies were things to stay away from, right? Because they were potentially going to be harmed. So you had a very bifurcated market and a large amount of money increasingly channeling its way into this narrow set of stocks. That yeah, is no, like that, the that's right. In fact, it strikes me that sometimes clients are more worried about missing out on a trade than about losing money. And, you know, so far that's been right. So tell me now, let's say you get a, a new client comes to see you, they bring you their portfolio, whatever size it is. How do you go about constructing a portfolio for somebody you know, in terms of achieving their objectives? Yeah. Um, so there's some basic due diligence here, right? There's that fact finding conversation or conversations right. where you really assess not only what people's assets and liabilities are, but what their goals are. You try to dig in a little deeper, get into people's heads and, and see what really makes them tick. Very often it's a couple you want to see if they're on the same page with each other. And, and then you want to assess risk, you know, and you could have two people whose profiles are literally exactly the same in every single way. They've got the exact same amount of money. They're the same age. They have the same job, but their feeling toward risk could be completely different. And so you then start to build the portfolio around helping them achieve that goal, which for most people is that secure retirement. There may be other intermediate goals, children's education, younger people, it's buying a house. And you try to build a portfolio. And the real rule here, which is almost uh, seems 180 degrees the opposite of what we've been saying, is you want to build a portfolio that ensures someone will achieve their goals with the least possible risk. And so uh, that sometimes takes a little bit of education with people, especially in an environment like this, to make sure they understand this is not about how can we make the most money. This is how can we get you where you want to go in a risk controlled way. Yeah, I, that's that, absolutely right. And so you, you, I'm sure you've got clients who've been with you, you know, for a long time, perhaps back in, until 2005 or since 2005. What do you think clients most appreciate about your approach to investing their money? I, I, I think it's the consistency. You know, we don't trade a lot. We're in touch with them. Certainly people have changes in their lives. One of our first clients, you know, came to us and it was last year during the pandemic. And we looked and they'd done extremely well because they had a heavy allocation of equities. They were risk oriented. But, you know, now they're not 45 years old anymore. They're 60. <laughs> you know, right. retirement is in the not too distant future and their assets had gotten to a very good place. So here we are in the middle of this pandemic and the combination of those events were, OK, let's take the equity allocation down substantially, uh, at least until we ride this out. And so I think people have watched the results over time. They've seen the steady compounding of their money, which is what we preach. You know, get that flywheel going in a positive way. You know, pretty soon it's real money, as Everett Dirksen once said. Yeah, and sure. So, so that's the approach is, you know, we are not out there like when I was on the sell side, like cowboys trying to quote unquote 
make people the most money. It's let's help people achieve their goals. Yeah, exactly. You know, something I've often wrestled with, what, what do you do when a client comes to you and they've got a lot of money in one stock, it's gone up a lot, uh, and, and obviously they've got big unrealized gain, there's a tax issue there, and they should diversify either into other stocks or even out of equities. How do you think about well, there's a tax liability as soon as we sell. How do you factor that into the recommendation to do that? Yeah, we do have a few of those situations. One notable one. And, you know, there's a few ways you can approach it. I tend to have a uh, sometimes send a mixed message on taxes. I'm always saying to people, don't let the tax tail wag the economic dog. Right. Some people are so phobic about taxes. They make bad investment decisions, you know. On right. the other hand, I don't like to generate taxes that we don't need to. One approach that we've taken is to keep some collars, use options to put a collar around the position. And so we'll sell a call, especially if we think the stock has had a run toward the high end of the range of where it's likely to trade for a while. And we'll take the proceeds of that call and use it to buy a put to, to generate some downside protection. And maybe not for the whole position but a third of the position or half the position. A lot of this is psychological, you know. If you are walking around feeling exposed all the time, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. If you feel like you've taken some action, you know, it might not be perfect, but you've taken meaningful action to protect yourself, then uh, people get a lot more comfortable. And so that, that's one key strategy that we've used with some success. That's interesting. Um... So where do you say your views are most different from consensus, whether it's on rates, equities, sectors, you know, where are you most different than consensus? Yeah, I, you know, uh, listen, I'm, I'm a natural value person myself. You know, the old fashioned common sense notion that you should buy an asset for 50 cents has always resonated with me. As an institutional salesman, I ended up gravitating towards some of the largest value managers because my psyche kind of melded with theirs. And so as we got into last fall and I saw more and more charts and analysis showing that we were at, if not beyond, these extreme peaks from the first quarter of 2000, that's when we actually started to take action. So we were obviously outside the consensus uh, at that time. Now, there's been a nice move in value for the last five, six months. Sure, so, sure. so the worst of those excesses have been somewhat corrected. But as you know, from what happened in after the peak in 2000, that shift from growth to value went on for many years. Yeah. So, you know, we are inclined, even if we got new money today, we still have some value tilts and some hedges built into the portfolio. And we are definitely sticking with that approach, at least for now. And I think it would take a big move in value before we would take that value tilt off. So, so give me one or two examples of that in terms of sectors or names. You know, uh, the bank stocks are, and having come from the brokerage industry and the banking industry, the bank stocks were at the heart of the value trade. You know, they need a steeper yield curve. So if you think the economy is going to be strong, if you think there's going to be at least a little bit of pickup in inflation, the bank stocks are, are one key place. And then the energy stocks also, you know, were very, very overdone and hit hard when, you know, the price of oil went briefly negative last year. And so to me, uh, banks and energy are at the are at the core of that value shift. Yeah, that was good. I mean, and regular listeners of this podcast know we've been living through that for years, but and it, that was absolutely the, the worst experience in energy uh, last year. What do you think about in the inflation outlook over the next, you know, two to three years? I mean, do you worry about it a lot? Do you think it's a temporary move up and it'll come back down? 
you know, it's funny. Uh, I sometimes say that uh, in the inflation, I call it the I word. You know, it's actually, in some senses, the single ugliest word in the English language when it comes to financial assets. <laughs> yes, that's right? not true. Because it hits bonds, of course, directly. And as we just saw with the growth stocks, you know, uh, inflation and higher interest rates are debt for high multiple growth stocks. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, I read a lot of strategy work. There's some very smart, deep thinkers who are into the long term disinflation and deflation trade. And there's an equal number of deep thinkers, just as sophisticated, who believe in the inflation trade. I, I, I sometimes say it's like that. It's like a Japanese monster movie, you know, King Kong and Godzilla are duking it out in the swamp. Right. You know, who's going right. to come out on top? I, I I lean toward the inflation thing. I, I think it's just the laws of economics tell us that that this ought to happen. But there are these forces, you know, demographics and debt. The two D's are two very big long term forces pushing us toward disinflation and deflation. But I think at least cyclically, we're likely to have this uh, pickup in inflation for a few years. And if that happens, you just do not want to be in these high growth stocks. They are the stock market equivalent of the long bond. And we saw that one day a couple months ago when the book long, uh, when the 10 year popped up about 12 basis points and those high growth stocks got slaughtered that day. Yeah. That, that was just a warning shot across the bow to remind people what the mathematics of these securities are and how painful it can get when it starts to go against you. And what, what do you think about the Fed continuing to uh, provide support to the long end of the curve and, and still buying bonds. Do you think that's justified? Do you think that's maybe a little, you know, past its sell-by date? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not an economist. Uh, I mean, I look at it, I think at some point, they have to start to turn the dial down. At what point is it not justified anymore? But we've seen what's happened in the past. You know, they're kind of trapped here, which is a very uncomfortable place to be. When you start to hear the, hear the term yield curve control, that goes against the grain for me as someone who believes in the functioning, free functioning of markets. You know, if you believe in markets and capitalism, you know, market prices are supposed to send you the right signal. If the Fed is interfering with that signal, assets are going to be mispriced. And that's a very difficult place from which to invest. Yeah, I mean, it is. There's never going to be a good time for them to withdraw from that, is there? They're, they're going to be doing it on a day when bonds are going down. It's going to make it tough. What about, um, you know, as you know, in, in our business, we're in the weeds in terms of energy because that's mostly what we focus on. And, and you look a lot more broadly than that. So uh, just tell people how you think about the energy transition and the risk to conventional energy assets and, you know, the whole movement, obviously, to, to limit uh, CO2 emissions. How do you see that playing out for the energy sector? Yeah, you know, uh, you are the expert on that and do a, a fantastic job educating us. I, I look at it very simply and I think, okay, if everybody's going to drive an electric car, which may actually be the case, you know, then the electricity has to come from somewhere, right? And even if you right. believe in wind and solar and, and other alternatives, which I do, uh, they're just not going to be able to completely fill the gap. Just that, you know, when you just look at the arithmetic of it. And so... To me, that's where you know gas ends up winning. Maybe oil has a bleaker long-term future, but it seems to me that gas could end up being the fuel of choice. You know, circling back to the comments before about bank and energy stocks, you know, being at the heart of the value trade. One of the things I think about these energy infrastructure stocks, as someone 
who believes in buying a stock for less than it's worth, that old-fashioned notion. I don't think there's much in the stock market right now that fits that description. Even bank stocks. Yeah, they're cheap, but they're cheap for a reason. But, right. but I, look, I look at these energy infrastructure companies, I feel like they are somewhat being, you know, the baby being thrown out with the bathwater with the concerns about the long-term prospects for oil. And I just look at these companies that are now cash flow generating machines with gigantic yields in an environment where all the people like me out there are looking desperately for yield. And I think, uh, put the climate stuff aside, I'm not an expert on that. Put all that macro stuff aside. I just look at these stocks and I think these are undervalued securities. And there's not much else in the stock market right now that I would say that about. And so I find myself drawn to them more and more. And lately, I've been telling people, you know, this is my single favorite idea. Uh, when I talk to my old friends who are still in the stock picking business, I said, this is my single favorite idea. I said, these stocks are actually cheap. And what else can you say that about? And so I really continue to try to look at things from a bottoms up basis. And the fact that we've shifted from being cash users to cash generators, which at least makes your dividends safe. And in fact, has you back in the mode of growing your dividends a little bit on top of the current yields. I just look and say, these are stocks that can really make you money and on a risk-adjusted basis are extremely attractive. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, energy investors have gone through, you know, the Shell revolution, which was a bust with too much building and investment and the energy transition sort of hanging over things and then COVID demand destruction. And uh, yeah, you know, from my perspective, as, as I know we chatted the other day, people are not throwing money with uh, irrational exuberance at the energy sector, which <laughs> which I think right. is, uh, is, is, is great in terms of, you know, the outlook. It's very definitely, very definitely not expensive. So, okay. Well, listen, that's great. I just appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been terrific to hear your, your thoughts and ideas. And I'm sure we'll do this again soon sometime. So, Jeff, thanks very much indeed. That was terrific. My pleasure, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to SL Advisors Talks Markets. To find more episodes like this one, go to our website, sl-advisors.com. There you can sign up for our blog, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and follow us on Twitter at Simon Lack.